0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's visit to Maui, Hawaii, following the worst fire in American history, which still has 850 people unaccounted for. Joining us to discuss issues related to water speculation by predators and the urgent needs of a traumatized community is Troy Andrade, the Joanna Lau, Sullivan, distinguished professor and director of the Ulu Lehua Scholars Program at the University of Hawaii School of Law. He has represented clients in matters related to some of the most contentious issues in Hawaii, including the regulation of genetically modified organisms and pesticides, homelessness, and native Hawaiian self-determination. Then we'll look into the landslide victory of a reformer, Bernardo Aravello, in Sunday's presidential election in Guatemala, which has been in the grip of a criminal clique tied to a murderous military, a corrupt oligarchy, and drug cartels. Joining us is Joe marie Burt, the president of the Latin American Studies Association, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America, and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society, Relations, Human Rights, and Transitional Justice in Latin America, and writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala. Then finally, we'll look into the BRICS Summit, which started today in South Africa with China's President Xi in attendance, but with Russia's President Putin addressing the summit by video because of his outstanding arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. Joining us is Sarang Shadori, director of the Global South Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. We will discuss his article at The Nation, The Global South's BRICS Play Should Not Be Dismissed. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now from Hawaii is Troy Andrade, who is the Joanna Lau-Sullivan Distinguished Professor and Director of the Ulu Lahua Scholars Program at the University of Hawaii School of Law. He is representing clients in matters relating to some of the most contentious issues in Hawaii, including the regulation of genetically modified organisms and pesticides, homelessness, and native Hawaiian self-determination. Welcome to Background Briefing, Troy Andrade.
1: Aloha, thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and I imagine under the in, included in the contentious issues have to be water resources I mean they apparently they, they ran out of water it's very you know people fleeing the fire <laughs> grabbing what possessions they could you know grab their their water vouchers and entitle them to water so is water a big issue in Hawaii and who owns it
1: you know water is absolutely a big issue and has always been historically an issue for for Hawaii we live in an island state, an island community where resources, land and water are limited. Um, and so water has always been at the forefront of a lot of a lot of issues. And, you know, in, in Hawaiian, we have a word called uh, vai vai, which is sort of abundance of water. And, you know, Hawaii has always been a place that, although limited, has always been a place where we could steward our water in a way that we ensured that everyone had access to safe, healthy water. And um, and, you know, this, this particular incident, and you know it really is a, a tragic incident that has come to our, our Maui community, um, highlights some of the larger historical struggles that have happened here in Hawaii over, over water resources.
0: And what exactly happened in terms of the inability to fight the fire? Was there simply not enough water or not enough firefighters and assets?
1: You know, I think one thing that we have to be cognizant of is that they're still investigating everything that had happened. But um, West Maui, where these fires occurred, have actually had over a two-century-long history of water being taken away from this particular area. Um, Lahaina, in particular, was a was the capital. It was the seat of government for the Hawaiian Kingdom. It was a place that was abundant with water, abundant with with plant life and um, you know, 200 years later, it's become somewhat of a, of a desert land area because water has been siphoned away by large um, landowners who have used water to, to propagate their their own economic interests. Um, particularly with the rise of the sugar industry, sugar industry and sort of the plantation economy, you had water being taken away from this area of land, and it's not something that's unique to. To West Maui but something that has happened actually all over the state of Hawaii and this water is is being siphoned away which leaves these communities with um, fire-prone lands now um, that with the advent of changes in our um, environment and our climate has just um, burgeoned with fires more recently and you know for for this particular area um, in regards to the recent fires, there's been, you know, there's there's still an investigation that is underway, um, but my understanding is that there was not enough water being pumped into this area, and the pumps um, actually couldn't work because of the ways in which the water system was connected to the power structure, the, the um, electrical structure, which had failed during this um, during this time.
0: So one of the more alarming pieces of news coming in the aftermath of this, the worst fire in, in, in American history in terms of casualties. The, over 100 people of uh, remains have been recovered, but there's still uh, 850 people missing. And One of the reports that I heard recently was that among that 850 missing is likely to be a lot of children who were home alone while their parents were, were at work. Is, is that your understanding, Troy?
1: You know again it's still sort of unclear but this is a tremendous tragedy to the community. We know that there are a lot of children who are still missing. I don't know the the exact number Um, but there are stories about family members trying to get back into their homes because they had left their children at home. School hadn't uh, started yet officially and so you know these were the last few days of summer for these kids and um I don't think anyone was expecting a wildfire to come in and ravage this community. Um, it, is, it is the most gut-wrenching um, thing imaginable. As someone with, with my own two children, it is something that you know, we as a community, both in Hawaii, but also throughout the United States, need to provide as much support as we can for our, for our communities who are still, still in the process of grieving and piecing everything back together in their lives.
0: And President Biden and the First Lady, of course, are visiting today, Maui, obviously wanting to do what they can. I think there was some concern about not going earlier because of not getting in the way. What's your sense of of what the federal government can offer and, and what the Biden visit might achieve?
1: Well, I know that FEMA has been here on the ground in Hawaii trying to help wherever they can. My understanding is that- Um, There's been a lot of hiccups along the way with processing paperwork because a lot of people's paperwork has been destroyed in the fire. Um, And so I know our our federal congressional delegation has been working hard with FEMA along with the Biden administration to try to close up as many loops as possible. I think President Biden and First Lady Biden coming to Maui, um, I hope, will continue to put out into the national spotlight the importance of everyone throughout the United States coming together to support this community. Um, what they're going to see, I think, is what everybody has seen in some of these images. Um, but actually being on the ground, I think, is going to give them a lot more perspective to provide. My hope is to provide additional resources, federal resources, to this community that is in desperate need of of support.
0: And, Troy, you're currently writing a book about the political and legal history of the Office of Hawaiian. Hawaiian Affairs, and you recently wrote a piece at, at the American Constitution Society, Portrait of a Queen, Hawaii's History and the Law. So tell us the significance of Lahaina in terms of the seat of royalty in Hawaii's history.
1: So Maui has always had a very powerful um, Dynasty of kings and queens prior to the unification of the Hawaiian Islands. Once the Hawaiian Islands were unified under its first sovereign, who we call Kamehameha the First, his his wife's family was entirely from from this area in Maui, and so um, the historical significance is unmatched throughout um, throughout Hawaii, with the exception of maybe Honolulu, where the the, the seat of government moved to. Um, But again, Lahaina was an abundant place. It was known as the the Venice of the Pacific with water and resources there that provided the ability for the high-ranking chiefs of the time to really anchor themselves in the community and make really good, thoughtful decisions about resources for everyone in the community. Um, A lot of that has been lost. Um, Some of our our royal families are, are buried still in in Lahaina, and my understanding is that those at graveyard was uh, someone saved in in the fire, um, but there is a lot of significant history of Hawaii that has been lost in in these fires. Lahaina has been sort of the port of of, of commerce for the kingdom. It was the seat of power um, through various industries, through the whaling industry, the sandalwood agent industry, through you know the the, the shift to the sugar industry. And has been, I think a lot of people now know Lahaina as as a spot for um tourism. And so it has seen a lot and we've just lost a lot of a lot of what we call mana, right? In in that particular area. Um, but that mana still lives on in in the people there. And for a lot of us um who are not there on the ground in Maui, um, trying to provide that support is really what what this community needs and to provide them the space to to one, be able to grieve, but then also to rebuild this community in the way that they see fit to rebuild Lahaina.
0: But therein is some ugly stuff that's going on, isn't there, Troy? With speculators moving in, conning people to grab their land, and developers are already chafing at the bit. So you're getting, aren't you, getting examples of the best and worst of humanity in this aftermath of this tragedy?
1: You know, we are. And it is it's really disappointing to see um, and to hear about um, land speculators who are reaching out to community members who are still trying to find loved ones. Community members who've just lost their homes um, and are trying to, you know, put food on the table and are trying to provide themselves with clean water to drink and to to, to bathe themselves. And to hear the, these uh, speculators coming in and trying to take land, you know it was it was great that recently the Governor signed a an emergency proclamation that um, basically punishes uh, certain types of land speculation for this community. My guess is that this will be challenged um, in courts in the court system at some point. Um, and so our hope is that you know we can get the message out for people to just let this community recover before coming out. Um, there's a lot of lawyers from continental United States who have made their way into Hawaii to try to get to some of these community members. Um, as as a lawyer and a law professor, I know that there will be um, tremendous liability that will be needing to have adjudicated by courts. Um, but I would say now, right now, we're not even two weeks into this, is not the time for people to come and try to take advantage. For the most part, of these people who are who are suffering, and so there will be a time, but I think it's important for for the for the larger community to hear that people are suffering right now, and we need to help in whatever way we can get them the support they need to move forward before we come in and um, provide those types of of resources.
0: Well, the more recent fire, the, the Maui fire, of course, is, I mean, which is dwarfs compared to the Maui fire, but fire in Paradise, California, I think eighty some 83 people, I think it was, died in that. PG&E, the big Northern California Electrical Company, was held liable. Other, and I think here in the more recent fires here in Malibu and around Los Angeles, I think it's Southern California and Edison was also had to pay a lot of money. Something similar is happening in Maui, isn't it? Uh, Or at least fingers are being pointed at the electrical company. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, as far as um, I'm aware, there are um, four lawsuits that have been already filed. Um, And and I think the the, the fingers are being pointed uh, by these plaintiffs against the electrical company. Um, One unique thing about Hawaii is that we have one electric company that supports the entire... Um, state, with the exception of one island. And so managing those issues, I think, is really, really um, important and time-sensitive and something, again, that I don't think the community right now is ready to to deal with. But <laughs> some lawyers are ready to jump in the fray. And again, there will be a time, but I think now is not, not that time.
0: So just to touch on the history, though, we talked a little bit about Hawaiian royal families, Hawaii itself is a relatively recent state in the United States, is it not? It used to be called the British Sandwich Islands. It was a British colony up until what, the beginning of the 20th century?
1: Well, so Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom um, until 1893, when there was an illegal overthrow with the support of the American government. And Hawaii, um, through various laws, became a territory of the, um, of Hawaii, of the United States in 1900. Um, and then from there, um, statehood came in 1959. Um, and so Hawaii is the newest state to the United States, but has been long connected with, with America. Um, but sort of during the kingdom, there was always this, this, um, affinity by some in the royal family towards the British government, um, but in the end, it was the American government that overthrew the the Kingdom of Hawaii and pulled Hawaii into the United States.
0: So we're talking about a coup. It obviously wasn't the CIA in those days, right? But that's not exactly a good way to start a relationship with the indigenous people.
1: You know, it, it's really not. And there's a unique history there in terms of what actually happened and the way in which the then sovereign during the time of the overthrow basically yielded her power to the United States in the hopes that they would make right sort of the injustices that occurred um, at the hands of some citizens of the Hawaiian kingdom who were actually, who had actually had the support of the British, of sorry, of the American uh, military that was here in in. Honolulu Harbor at the time. And unfortunately that never happened. You know, politically um, America was going into the Spanish war and Spanish American war and Hawaii obviously is right smack dab in the middle of the Pacific as America tried to look at expanding across the Pacific. And so Hawaii became to some extent a, a, um, a land grab by the United States to ensure their continued military power throughout the Pacific. And that hasn't been, over the past few decades, hasn't been um, fully reconciled.
0: Well, Troy Andrade, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I know it's a terrible tragedy and and probably worse to come in terms of the full casualty figures, but I appreciate you joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Aloha.
0: Hello to you, and again I've been speaking with Troy Andrade, who is the Joanna Lau-Sullivan, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Ulu Lehua Scholars Program at the University of Hawaii School of Law. He has represented clients in matters relating to some of the most contentious issues in Hawaii, including the regulation of genetically modified organisms and pesticides, homelessness, and native Hawaiian self-determination. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the landslide victory of a reformer, Bernardo Aravalo, in Sunday's presidential election in Guatemala, which has been in the grip of a criminal clique tied to a murderous military, a corrupt oligarchy, and drug cartels. Night and you and blue. The night is a heaven to me. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available twenty-four-seven at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now Joe Marie Burt, who is the president of the Latin American Studies Association and a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state security, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America, and she writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jo-Marie Burt. Hi, it's nice to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and actually it's one of those rare occasions where we're covering something that's very hopeful, and that is the elections that just took place in Guatemala, where an incredibly corrupt regime hasn't necessarily ended, but the people have spoken in a massive vote for the new leader, Bernardo Aravello, a resounding victory of the votes versus the former first lady tied to the corrupt regimes, Sandra Torres, who came in at 37%. So this is extraordinary, is it not? A manifestation of
2: the public protest against corruption. It truly is extraordinary. I cannot express how extraordinary it is. I mean, first of all, for... Bernardo Arevalo to have made it into the second round in the first place, having been almost a non-entity in the polls just a month prior to the first round election. The fact that during this uh, the period between the first round and the second round, the current regime was doing everything in its power to prevent him from running in this second round vote. Um, uh and thirdly the fact that his win is so dramatic he won by 21 points against his rival Sandra Torres so it really is extraordinary in so many ways and i and i think it's important to sort of bask in this very hopeful moment and what it signifies for Guatemala a country just you know um Corroded by corruption, immense inequality and poverty. Um, so for someone like Bernardo Arevalo, who's made at the center of his campaign, the combat against corruption, returning kind of functional government, government that is for the people, for him to win and with such a, an overwhelming uh Proportion—it's really, really quite astounding. You know, all that said, I don't want to be the, you know, the, 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 the person who brings everything down. But the other, the other shoe is about to drop, right? Because the the entrenched elites are not going to give up so easily. They have, I think, several plans in place, um, either to prevent Arevo from actually assuming office, or if once in office. Preventing him from being being able to do anything, so uh, the, the battle is won but the war continues in, in and manner speaking
0: well they've already tried to stop him in this election and to uh, decertify or ban the seed party right that is his party yep. so just yep. explain what what's already happened and how somehow he's survived and was able to to get this incredible win
2: right. Um, well, the the Guatemalan elite have become, and the present government in particular, have become very adept at what's referred to as lawfare, using uh, legal institutions in a spurious uh, way to attack your opponents, to persecute those who are, you know, in opposition to you. Um, and they've used this against judges, against prosecutors, against journalists, against community activists in Guatemala. You know, we, we've talked about this numerous times in the past. There are more than 30 prosecutors and judges currently in exile because of these kinds of practices, as well as you know dozens of journalists, community activists, uh, indigenous uh, leaders, and and so on and so forth. Um, and so when Bernardo Arevalo won in the first round, completely catching the elites off guard, um, They ordered um, their minions at the attorney general's office uh, to investigate his party, to find a way to suspend the legal standing of the party in an effort to prevent Arevalo from running in the second round. And they were basically uh, charging that the party was registered in, I think it was 2018 or 2019, as a formal legal entity using fraudulent signatures that's the charge um but the fact is that guatemalan law the, the law on political parties establishes quite clearly that a party cannot be canceled in the middle of an elections process right um and so eventually those efforts faltered also because i think very importantly there was a lot of domestic and international outcry in what was a just a bald attempt at removing this anti-corruption candidate from the elections process, right? Um, however the rulings that stopped the suspension of the seed party during the elections campaign, where there's now a new um in, we're in a new moment. It's now the elections are over at at Evalu one. Um, and the, the rulings said that the m it did not say that the, the the attorney general could not continue its investigation into the seed party. And so what people are fearing is that the uh, attorney general will continue its investigation, bring charges against the seed party, either in an attempt to outright block Arevalo from taking power, or maybe they allow him to take party, but they um, get the deputies that he has in Congress, and he only has something like, I think it's 25 or 27 out of 160 deputies, so he doesn't even have anything close to a majority, uh, but to get those people, uh, uh, prevent those people from taking their office. So his his presence in Congress is even further diminished right than what it already is. Mm-hmm. So the,
0: hist- um, the the history, though, goes back to this corrupt regime that has ties, military ex-generals, ties to organized crime and drug dealing. And Giamatti, the current incumbent, is a part of that group. But Jimmy Morales, before him, who was also corrupt, he booted out the UN-backed anti-corruption mission from Guatemala in 2019. Right. And uh, since then, they've used the justice system uh, through the Attorney General's office to basically go after all those that were in the anti-corruption fight and about 30 prosecutors and judges have fled into exile, as you've mentioned. So what's happened, though, now is that world leaders, AOS had election monitors along with the EU. Uh, world leaders, and, and including President Biden, have been quick to congratulate Bernardo Adavalo. Yeah. So how much, and that seems pretty deliberate, how much yes, do you think I that's going to that help will- solidify his position? that he's being welcomed uh, as a winner uh, in a landslide.
2: Right, right. I mean, I think, I certainly think that it strengthens his hands. Um, And I think it's hugely important that the international community stepped up and recognized that in Bernardo Arevalo, they would have an ally in terms of, you know, helping to deal with some of the worst forms of corruption in Guatemala and trying to rebuild its democratic institutions, which have been, you know, just smothered by uh, these corrupt governments that you've mentioned. Um, So I do think it's very important. And I think we can um, look to a sign, right? Um, What is going to happen with the current attorney general, Consuelo Porras? She was appointed by Jimmy Morales in uh, probably 2019, right? And she was not long after named by the United States Uh, Department of State as a corrupt and non-democratic actor. She was sanctioned. And uh, when her term was ending, um, it was hoped, a lot of people hoped that Yamate, even though he used her quite effectively to silence his opponents, was going to select someone else. But instead he selected her um and she was again sanctioned by the united states government but what it means is that this is a woman who has an incredible amount of power in the attorney general's office and technically Arevalo, the new incoming president does not have the power to fire her the question is going to be how strong is the popular um support for him and for uh instigating change in guatemala going to be such that she is under just total pressure to resign, right? That is going to be a key task of Arevalo's government. I mean, I, and I do expect to see starting today, starting this week, next week, long before he takes office, I think you're going to start to see calls for her to step down. Um, And that's going to be the key, I think, to, uh, or a key to his ability to rule effectively, assuming He
0: is allowed to take office, right? Right. Well, the vote, though, uh, was overwhelming, as we've made clear. And most of the vote came from the young. This is a country where the average age in Guatemala is 26 compared to 38 in the United States. And the criminals in league with with the murderous generals and the drug cartels, have been running the place and as we've just pointed out how they've used the law as a weapon and themselves in the law and until you get rid of the attorney general it's going to be pretty hard for this guy to be able to act on the mandate he's got and the safety valve that the crooks have used is migration to the United States and that's being shut right. down so this is really a case of if they pull their old tricks the the kids are going to take to the streets, aren't they?
2: Well, I mean, we've seen it before, right? Let's not forget in 2015, when the country was run by a former army general, Otto Perez Molina, um, who, uh, removed from office, one of the most well-known anti-corruption, anti-impunity crusaders of Latin America, Claudia Pazipas. Um, And he was literally brought to his knees after four months of sustained citizen protest, forced to um, step down from uh, the presidency. He was arrested, put in jail, and has since been convicted of massive corruption. Um, And that is because of sustained citizen protest. Now, that did occur at a moment when CC, the UN anti-impunity body that you mentioned a moment ago, was still in Guatemala, was still very active in these kinds of anti-corruption investigations. They're gone, and the local unit that they helped strengthen over time and embolden, and was still acting long after CC left Guatemala, that's been decimated, and it's been taken over by um, Consuelo Poros, the attorney general, and her minions. Right? In fact, the the person who is actively um, going after the seed party right now is the head of that entity, the anti-corruption unit in the attorney general's office. Rafael Currucici is his name. Another person who's been um, sanctioned by the United States government as a corrupt and undemocratic actor. Um, But I think that you're, you're, You know, your reference to the young people, I think, is really important. That youthful energy and hope has been ignited. I think one thing that democratic theorists um, teach us is that, you know, when you have a bad situation, a bad government, um, until there is a viable alternative, people aren't necessarily going to be moved to action. And what we've seen in Guatemala is that an, an alternative emerged, in, in large part because of the vote itself, right? But it emerged and it captured the imagination of millions of Guatemalans. Um, and I think that that energy, that hopefulness, um, but also that indignation, I think it's spurred on by indignation of a country that had been moving towards establishing rule of law, fighting out, routing out corruption and impunity, and that was just destroyed, demolished by the the gangs that are currently in, and I say gangs quite deliberate, it's a mafia that currently runs Guatemala, right? And so the, the hope combined with this indignation, this exhaustion with these old corrupt politicians, bureaucrats, and oligarchic elites, that I think that is what we're going to see in the coming weeks and months. How strong is that impetus? I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful for the first time in a very long time in Guatemala.
0: So just in closing, Jean Marie, I imagine uh, the Dallas brothers are rolling over in their graves <laughs> because <laughs> this uh, young, not young, he's 64 years old, a former diplomat, Oh. Bernardo Arevalo, who just won a huge fifty-eight to thirty-seven victory in in the Guatemala presidential election. His father was Guatemala's first president, wasn't he? First democratic elected president. He was
2: Guatemala's first democratically elected
0: president. Who the CIA overthrew.
2: Office. Well, the CIA overthrew oh, overthrew uh, his, his predecessor, Cobo right. Arben. Right. But 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 Arevalo worked in the Arbenz government, they very much were, um, a team. Uh, and there they had a vision for democratizing and modernizing Guatemala up until that point, Guatemala really was a fiefdom run by a handful of oligarchic families and the United Fruit Company and the U S government. I mean, that's, it's, it sounds like a caricature, but that was the reality, right? Banana
0: um, Republic, right?
2: Uh, Right, exactly. Typical Banana Republic, exactly. Um, uh, and Arevalo and then Arbenz came in with plans for, you know, education reform, labor reform, um, uh, health care reform, uh, citizen reform, and the vote for everybody. Before, you know, before Gu- Guatemalan indigenous people were forced to work on the haciendas, that was about that forced labor law was abolished. Uh, Arbenz himself carried out a a land reform, which is one of the things that, you know, really ticked off the United Fruit Company, which was the biggest landowner in Guatemala at that time, right in the mid-1950s. So, yeah, uh, Arbenz was overthrown by a CIA-led coup, and he and Arevalo were forced into exile. And that's that's why Bernardo Arevalo, Guatemala's president-elect, was born in Uruguay because his parents were living in exile after the overthrow of Arbenz. So it's really, you know, the the, the the you can see photographs from Guatemala on social media of you know elderly men and women with images not of Bernardo's son but Bernardo's father saying, "I remember Arevalo." Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not just that he's representing the present. Effort to recover Guatemala from all these corrupt actors, it's also sort of a historic vindication of the democratic spring that his father and Jacobo Arbenz were putting in place that was brutally brought to an end at the hands of the CIA, the Guatemalan military, and oligarchy. So there's something, there's this historic. um, Right, but, but
0: just in closing though. After this coup, what followed was massacres of oh, hundreds of thousands brutal. of indigenous people, massive corruption, yeah. drug cartels, yeah. and murderous generals. And now, that finally, right. the page is turned, going back to before the CIA coup. What an irony!
2: Yeah, I thank you for joining. It's really us, quite incredible.
0: I thank you for joining us, uh, Jemurray, but. Thanks for having me, and Take care. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Marie Burt, who's the president of the Latin American Studies Association, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She's published widely on political violence, state-society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America, and writes about war crimes prosecutions in Guatemala. We're gonna take a brief station break We're back looking into the BRICS summit, which started today in South Africa, with China's President Xi in attendance, but with Russia's President Putin addressing the summit by video because of his outstanding arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. Cuando bailo con mi María, hasta un grito me sale así. ¡Qué rechulas son las inditas cuando las veo bailar! Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarang Shadori, the director of the Global South program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. And he has an article at the Nation The Global South's BRICS Play Should Not Be Dismissed. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarang Shadori.
3: Wonderful to be here, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Sarang. So the BRICS summit is underway in South Africa. It just began today with the leaders of Brazil, India, China, and South Africa, and it's the only the second uh, trip abroad uh, this year for China's uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not in attendance physically because of the arrest warrant against him from the International Criminal Court, which apparently South Africa decided, or oh, they talked him out of not going because they didn't want to have to deal with that issue but what's your sense then of uh, what might come out of this meeting and why you feel that it should not be dismissed or who's trying to dismiss it that's
3: perhaps a better way to put it (laughs) Uh, well you know there have been sort of punditry or commentaries over time and and this year is not entirely entire those are still uh, to be seen this year saying that the BRICS grouping and these summits are really just talk shops. They don't really matter. They don't do anything substantive to change the world order or to shift uh, the power dynamic in the international plane. And uh, we are seeing some of that commentary this year, as I said. There is a point to all that because, of course, the BRICS, hasn't revolutionized the world. We haven't seen dramatic transformations because of the last few years of summits. Uh, This year's summit uh, will also likely not dramatically uh, change the world, but these sorts of organizations rarely do that. Uh, The significance of this summit is that there are agendas that are moving forward in the BRICS grouping. As you said, uh, the countries are Brazil, Russia, India, Uh, China and South Africa, to that list is potentially going to be added, or not added, but at least considered to be added, a slew of new countries. Now, that's a proposal or discussion in the rooms. There is no guarantee that we will uh, see, in fact, it's unlikely we're going to see new members being added. But what is possible and plausible is that we will start talking in the BRICS rooms. We will see conversation on creating a process to admit new members into the core group. Now, mind you, that has already happened for uh, an institution BRICS has set up. It set it up eight years ago, uh, kind of a mini World Bank, if you will. It's called the BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank. That's a formal name of the institution. And uh, it already has admitted four new members, Egypt, the UAE, Bangladesh, and I believe the latest member is actually Uruguay. And uh, so this is not entirely new to the BRICS group, but they're actually now going to start talking about admitting new members into the core uh, of the grouping.
0: Well, a total of 69 countries have been invited to this summit in South Africa, which began today including all African states. Right. So that's a substantial number of delegates, right?
3: Yes. Uh, the number of countries coming is uh, quite large. Uh, of those, 20-odd countries have applied for membership. So there's a fairly significant waiting list that's already there. So when, when you know, you have so many countries coming and and quite a few applying for membership, clearly this is a club that, Uh, many Global South countries find it desirable to join. And that tells you a little bit uh, that it's not exactly relevant or uh, marginal.
0: Well, one of the reasons that we're sort of talking about BRICS and the Global South, in particular the Global South, is that I think it's come as a sort of something of a shock to the United States, and uh, perhaps to NATO as well, that much of the Global South, if not most of the Global South, does not support the war in Ukraine in terms of supporting Ukraine or the US on the NATO position. Many support Russia, and others are on the fence. So that's sort of a wake-up call. How much do you think that is a result of the U.S.'s hypocrisy in invading Iraq, for example, and occupying Afghanistan, and there's no way in the world you can't look back on the last what twenty, thirty years of U.S. foreign policy and not recognize it's not exactly a model to follow.
3: The BRICS official position on the Russia-Ukraine war is um, to call for a dialogue between Russia and Ukraine. And and this is, uh, by the way, quite different from, let's say, the G7's joint statement that you saw in Hiroshima this year, which takes a very strong position against the Russian aggression and commits to reversing that aggression. Uh, The BRIC statement from last year, and I think this will also be the same this year, uh, does not quite say that It, it, however, does endorse the principle of territorial integrity, which countries like South Africa have taken a clear position that they do not support or they oppose uh, the invasion. They at least see it as a violation of international law. But then they've put it in a context. The context is exactly as you say. There are two contexts, actually. One context is, uh, and that's explicitly said much more, is that this war itself is the problem. For the global south states, there is this idea of, yes, that has been a violation, but the urgent crisis for them is a continuation of the war. As long as the war goes on, their food security, prices of fuel at the pump, uh, in general, global the global order stability is all working against their interests. And their people's interests. And they want this war to end, and they want a dialogue process to, 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 to achieve that. Uh, and of course, and some of these states have said this openly, the fact that very different standards are applied when one country launches an illegal war versus another. Uh, the US, of course, we remember Iraq. Uh, you can go back and even think of Kosovo, but certainly Iraq, and some other actions of the US which are illegal under international law uh, are treated very differently when it comes to these sorts of sanctions regimes. We don't see sanctions regimes as responses to those. So uh, Global South States look at all that and sort of see it as essentially driven by the dynamics of power and not principle so much. Uh, And they are obviously responding to that uh, perceived hypocrisy as well. So
0: what do you expect to come out of it then? It's a three-day summit. It just started today. And as I, as I mentioned, this is the second trip abroad this year for President Xi of China, He earlier visited Putin in Moscow. Xi, of course, has, been, has sent his delegates to the peace conference that took place in Saudi Arabia, hosted by Saudi Arabia, that was, I think, 40 nations attended to work on a Ukrainian peace plan, a 10-point peace plan. So, obviously, with the destruction of the grain ports in Ukraine and tensions over shipping in the Black Sea, the BRICS countries concerned about food security coming from these huge grain-producing countries, Russia and Ukraine, along with producers of fertilizer, they've got to be even more concerned, right? So, what you'll read on the Saudi peace talks and which didn't include Russia, but it did include China and it did include India, and I think right. Brazil as well, didn't it? I think Brazil sent a delegation as well. Yes, they did.
3: Yes, uh, I think any time there is a dialogue that involves the broader international community on peace uh, in Ukraine is a is a good thing. So the fact that China attended, as you said, is very significant. And the fact that other major global south states were in the room. Now, the lack of Russia being in the room means that it's not really a a traditional peace uh, dialogue. But it really was more of a pitch by the US and its core allies to try and convince uh, global south states that they should take a tougher stand. This is certainly a part of these sorts of conversations. But the way I look at it is, That may be the objective of the US, but in these rooms, uh, conversation will be and should be a two way process. So there's also a chance here for major states like India and others and China to communicate their own views to the delegations from the US and other aligned countries about the acuteness of the crisis, the urgency to end the war and potentially some proposals that may emerge even in informal uh, conversations on the sidelines about trying to move this forward because we know that this war is currently a stalemate and neither side really is finding a decisive moment uh, on this. So the urgency for trying to look for off ramps is absolutely going to be in the minds, even of the administration in Washington, we are seeing those signals that they are not uh, very happy at where this is going. And they don't want this to go on forever, really. Nobody does. So uh, I would say that these informal dialogues are still welcome. In terms of BRICS, When remember BRICS is a kind of a organization where you have these countries in the room you don't have any US, US isn't present in the room, nor are America's core allies present in the room. So we are, we are talking of core allies in Europe, Japan, or South Korea, they're not present in in these rooms when BRICS countries are present with all these other countries from Africa and elsewhere. So this is a chance for effectively the global south and the global east, if I may use the term, uh, to describe russia and china to have that conversation uh and again they are not always aligned uh there are differences between china russia and some of the key global south states so so all, all of these dynamics in, in a world where we don't have military solutions to most problems uh the u.s found out found that out in iraq and russia is finding that out in Ukraine. And then again, Ukraine is finding that out when it tries to expel Russia entirely as well.
0: So is there discussions though about the world trade being dominated by the US dollar? We've heard forever efforts by some countries to get out from under it, particularly perhaps the deal that was made with Iran recently to uh, unfreeze Iranian money in South Korea was denominated in euros at the insistence of Iran. And um, there have been talks about the idea of perhaps Saudi Arabia selling oil to China in the Chinese currency. So is that going to be a part of the discussions?
3: So de-dollarization has become a big uh, topic of discussion among many countries this year. I think the Russia sanctions were a wake-up call to a lot of countries. As long as... Uh, international or US-led unilateral sanctions were focused on Iran or Cuba, Venezuela, they didn't tremendously rock the global boat. Uh, Iran was sort of a uh, borderline case uh, where actually countries did feel the pain of aligning with US demands on zero uh, oil imports from Iran. But they were able to do it. Now with Russia, although the U.S. has not really unleashed secondary sanctions in in their full capacities on countries, on Russia, nevertheless, that possibility is there. And I think countries have stared, uh, sort of stared down the cliff and looked into the abyss of a potential world in which these sorts of sanctions become much more threatening to their interests because Russia is a very major partner to many countries, whether it's energy, whether it's defense, whether it's fertilizers and so forth. So I think the the anxieties are growing. Now, that being said, the solution to that is not uh, easy or nor is it really achievable in the short or even medium term. If the solution is seen as trying to move away from the dollar and adopt some other mechanism or mechanisms to substantially become independent of these sorts of uh, sanctions regimes, which are, by the way, enabled because you do have a sort of a financial hegemony of the United States over the global system. Uh, I think what is happening, though, is uh, bits and pieces of nibbling away, let's say, at the dollar hegemony. At the moment, these are just. More marginal developments than central ones. But countries are starting to trade more in local currencies. Uh, There is the idea, or not the idea, actually, reality of uh, central bank digital currencies that are emerging. China, of course, is uh, steering that very strongly. Um, There are possibilities uh, being discussed. On, on the BRICS side, there was, there was an attempt to have a conversation about it. But some BRICS members are not comfortable. India has said it's not interested in having that conversation or being a part of any such currency. But the fact that, again, that BRICS is talking about it, and by the way, it's not for the first time. I mean, they have set up a task force on uh, payments mechanisms. We have a, a dominant payments mechanism called SWIFT. Uh, that is run out of Europe, but has essentially tremendous U.S. influence on it. Uh, and Russia has been cut off from the SWIFT system, by the way. So there's a task force to investigate whether BRICS can come up with, with an alternative system. Uh, of course, it's just a task force. But the point is that this issue has been taken up uh, in, within BRICS. And as the uh, risk of these sanctions grows unless the U.S. Uh, decides to fundamentally change its policies on sanctions, uh, which which I don't see happening. It's not on the horizon, at least. Uh, these sorts of attempts and conversations are going to continue to relentlessly be pushed. And in time, this can all add up. Well, Sarang,
0: we ran out of time, but I appreciate you joining us. And thanks again.
3: Thank you very much, Ian. I'm glad to be back again on your show.
0: Well, thank you, Sarang. And again, I've been speaking with Sarang Shadori, who is the director of the Global South program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. And he has an article at The Nation. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Master's Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The
2: guy that